You know, we've been talking about miracles over the last few weeks, signs that point to who Jesus is. And week after week, a different miracle of what Jesus did to point to who he is. But it's funny, when it comes to miracles, why is it that today we're not seeing miracles of God like they did back in the good old days? You know, why are we not seeing those kind of things happen anymore? Because it's not that they're not happening these days, but I think more often than not, we miss out on seeing them, mostly because we're just not looking. We're not looking. Um, Because I think God is very, very present and possibly so present and so apparent that we easily miss him because he's involved with everything that we're about. So uh, to do something spectacular, we say, God, do something wild, do something big so I can know that you exist. And, And I wonder when God hears that prayer, he goes, okay, well, like what? Like, what is it you want me to do? Um, Like, how about if I create a rock large enough for all of us to live on and fine-tune everything in it and about it so that it sustains life and stands out in stark contrast to all the other floating rocks out there in your universe? What if I did that? He goes, but I did do that. And that doesn't seem to be helping. Well, how about I do something really amazing? How about I create two 567 megapixel cameras and give each of you two of them, put them right in front of your face? And and then how about I connect those cameras to a 3,000 gigahertz computer with enough memory for you to pass knowledge down generation to generation to generation? But I already did that. And that doesn't seem to be pointing people to me. Well, how about this little trick? How about by the time I finish the sentence that I'm about to say, 50,000 cells in your body are going to die and be replaced with new ones before I even finish the sentence that I started talking about, about 50,000 cells, with no conscious effort on your part? Yeah, but that's not a real miracle, right? That's just called exfoliation. So how about something really spectacular? How about a genuine, miraculous healing that would just prove that God exists? See, I don't know what God would say to that. Because when you think about it, thanks to that 3,000 gigahertz computer brain that we all carry around, we've been equipped to miraculously heal most diseases ourselves. God created a species of humanity, but not just a species of humanity, a species of self-healers. In fact, if people 2,000 years ago went to go visit Nathan Harris at work, they would think he's a god, right? I'm trying to get people to vote for you, Nathan. Um, (laughs) Remember Dr. Steve Dunn? He's come and preached here a couple times. He says that as a surgeon, he was also a surgeon, he said all he had to do was line everything up in the way it's supposed to be, and then you just watch the body fixes itself the way God created it to fix itself. See, we're looking at a sign today. Miracles recorded in the Gospel of John that point to not simply what Jesus did, but they point to who Jesus was. And John gives this account, personal account. He documents so that future generations would know the story of Jesus. But he had an agenda. He had an agenda to this book. His agenda was that we would be convinced that Jesus is who Jesus claimed to be. He even tells us at the end of his book, which we call the Gospel of John, that he goes, I chose to write these things because I didn't cover everything that Jesus did, but I chose the ones that I covered in order that this would happen, in order that 
Uh, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Not that you would hear these stories and go, wow, cool story. Not that you would hear people tell these stories and go, wow, I actually never knew that part of that story before. He goes, I want you to know these so that you can believe specifically that if you're a Jewish person, which he was writing to in those days, that you would believe that Jesus is actually the Messiah that we have been waiting for for years and years and years and years. And if you're not Jewish and you're a Gentile, that you would be convinced that he is actually, as odd as this sounds, he's actually the unique and one and only son of God. And I don't want you just to believe that that might be true. Once you believe this is true, I want you to place your trust in him. And by placing your trust in him, I want you to decide to follow him. That you would live in a way that has a different kind of life and you would do it in his name. So we're looking at a sign today that sheds some light on why maybe we don't see as many miracles these days as they seem to used to back in the old days. See, Jesus is traveling. He traveled his ministry and he would go up and down up and down uh, Israel. He would go north and south, south and north. He would go from Judea to Galilee and then back to Judea and then to Galilee and then back to Judea. And whenever he was in Judea, he was usually in danger because that's where Jerusalem was. And it's where the temple leaders all hung out. And, and they were already a little put out by John the Baptist. And then along comes this Jesus guy. They were put out because they contradicted or seemed to contradict much of what they believed. And they're staring people up. They're getting people rocked up a little bit. And these religious leaders don't want their people rocked up. They don't want them steered up. Because if the people get steered up, Rome gets rocked up. And if Rome gets steered up, well, there's just trouble. There's just trouble. And we want to keep things smooth around here. So Jesus goes to Jerusalem. He dabbles. He does a few things. He stirs things up a bit. And then he goes back to Galilee where he teaches and, and kind of takes a break for a while. takes a breather. And then he goes back to Jerusalem again. He kind of stirs things up again. So in this part of the story, what we're going to look at in the Gospel of John, he's back in the city of Jerusalem. And John is with him. And John writes this. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. They probably went over to the rabbi and kind of whispered, said, hey, hey, rabbi, see that gentleman over there begging? He's been begging for years. He's there all the time. We're just, we're just curious. See, there was an assumption back in the first century that there's a cause and effect relationship between sin and suffering. Sin and suffering. Because if someone is suffering, it's probably because they sinned. Now, in some sense, it's okay because... Quite frankly, they're just getting what they deserve, right? Which actually adds a really interesting little dynamic when you read stories of people showing compassion to those who are suffering. As though, because uh, they knew that they were suffering because of a sin in the past, yet they still stepped in and helped, even though that was going on. Now, we all know that sometimes our actions uh, and our behavior results in suffering, right? We all know this. We also know that sometimes we suffer because of the actions of somebody else towards you. And when that's the case, it's usually obvious what's causing the suffering. But when it's not obvious, as Jesus is about to point out, there's no connection. So Jesus is about to shift their worldview by what he says next. And he says the answer to the question of was it him or was it his parents? And he says, well, actually, it was neither. 
Neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. You're thinking completely wrong about this, guys. And then he says something that creates a whole other new category for us to kind of wrestle with. He says, but this happened, this being the man being made born blind, this happened so that, and he starts leaning into this idea that suffering and pain can have a purpose. That pain and suffering can actually have a divine purpose purpose. Perhaps pain and suffering, I don't know, maybe it's always had a divine purpose. Jesus' pain and suffering, it definitely had a divine, eternal purpose. Uh, This man's pain and suffering, it certainly had a divine purpose as we're about to see. So maybe, maybe your pain, maybe your suffering, the issues you're dealing with, maybe it has a bigger purpose that God's actually in the middle of it as well. But then Jesus continues, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, sometimes God chooses to display his power on the platform or on the stage of our pain and of our suffering. It's not why it's there, but he uses it to show his glory in what's going on. I'm sure you've seen that before. I'm sure you've seen someone that in the midst of their pain and suffering, their response to their pain and suffering was so extraordinary that it actually caused your faith to grow. It caused your faith to deepen and get bigger. As a pastor, and you see this a lot, some of the most extraordinary effect that, has, that people's stories have had in my personal life following Jesus are not the people who lived wrinkle-free lives. They're not the people where they get great jobs and all their kids get scholarships and, and everybody lives to be 99 and a half years old and they die peacefully in their sleep. That's not impressive. What's impressive is a man or a woman or a child or a family or an individual that goes through extraordinary, difficult, hard, difficult times and their faith is rock solid. It doesn't waver. It doesn't disappear. A man's body is being deteriorated by cancer, yet instead of giving up, he puts his life into the lives of his adult children and other young men in the church, leaving a legacy of Jesus-following, kingdom-engaging activists, saints for the kingdom. Or a woman who lives with excruciating pain, no cure, constantly in pain. Instead of giving up, she serves others with joy and a smile on her face all the time until she's no longer able to leave her home. And there she becomes a prayer warrior that moves heaven and earth for the sake of God's kingdom purpose. You've seen this. You all know people like this. So Jesus turns to his audience. They're focused on the blind man. They're kind of whispering to him, like, hey, what did, he, what did he do? What did he do to make this happen? And Jesus turns to the disciples, and he says this. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And the disciples are going, ah, oh, see, there you go. You're doing what you do again, Jesus, right? We're talking about one thing, and man, you just spin it over here and talk about something totally random. We have no idea what you're going on about. We were talking about a man that's blind, and, and now, you t- what? What are you talking about? And Jesus goes on. He says, while I'm in the world, I am the light 
of the world. He's saying, look, guys, my identity, who I am, who I truly am, will never be more apparent than it is right now. The light of the world, me, the light of the world will never be brighter than it is right now while I am on planet Earth. Because when I leave, it'll get dark. It will be dark. So watch me right now. Learn from me and believe. And John, Matthew, take good notes. I don't know if he said that, but they must have been taking notes. And then it goes on. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Before anyone could say, hey, 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 don't do that. We don't do that so close to the temple, not on the sidewalks like that. He made some mud with some saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. I wish we had more details. Really. I mean, but we don't. I mean, did he ask him first? Hey, you mind if I do this? Did he say, Peter, John, hold them down while I spear my spit on his eye? I mean, what happened there? We don't have any more details than that. Jesus, well, he spits. <laughs> Makes some mud and dirt and just put it on the guy's eyes. And then he says something to him that we've all heard him tell other people throughout the story of the Bible. And he says something that actually he tells our whole generation today. He says to the man who was born blind, he says, Go. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Shalom, which means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. He told him, walk away from me. Go, leave my presence. Go and wash in the pool. So the blind man, as my wife has taught me to see, because she used to teach how to read behind the scenes what's going on in movies and literature, it's foreshadowing. Right? This is foreshadowing. This is John's whole point. This is why he chose this event. So the blind man walks by faith and not by literally. Literally, he walks blind. Jesus did what your heavenly father would like you all to do, would love for me to do. The blind man chose to trust someone he could not see based on the rumors, the testimonies about that person. See, at the end of John's gospel, he says, hey, blessed are you guys who saw all this stuff, but I'm telling you, double blessed are those who believe in me and have not seen. So the man goes to the pool, Shalom, and he does what Jesus says, and he washed his eyes, and suddenly he can see. And then where does he go? He went home. He went home. What he did was he chose to, he decided, he chose to walk by faith and not by sight. He couldn't even see until after he did what Jesus told him to do. He couldn't get what he wanted until he did what Jesus said to do first with no proof that it would actually work. Man, apply that to your marriage. Apply that to your children. Apply that to your money. Apply that to all the things that say, prove to me this will work and I'll do it. Apply faith to those big things and watch what might happen. So he went home. And when he goes home, his neighbors are out. They're out there in the yards. And his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him uh, asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? 
Well, some claimed that he was, and others said, nah, he just looks like him. That, surely that can't be the guy. He just looks like him. But he himself insisted, I'm the guy. I'm the man. And of course, they then followed up with some more questions like anybody would ask. And they said, well, then how? How are your eyes open, they asked. And he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go into the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and then I could see. You know, you've heard of that man. We've all heard of that man. We've heard the rumors. Some of you said you've even seen him. Well, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. I guess he didn't know where the mud came from because he probably would have said that. It was probably better that he didn't know. So he he told me to go to the pool of Siloam and wash it, and I did what he asked me to do, even though it made absolutely no sense at all. I washed, and then I could see. And now they're curious. Well, where is this man, they asked. I, I don't know, he said. I didn't see which way he went. Sherlock? <laughs> now... He didn't really say that. But when I read the scripture, I thought, that should be in there. But it's not actually very pastoral or theologically sound to be so creative with scripture. So this is actually what he said. He actually just said, I don't know. I don't know. So they did what they were supposed to do at that point based on the old covenant or the relationship between God and the nation of Israel when someone was miraculously healed or it seemed like someone was going to be able to come back into society after being healed of a disease they were taken to the religious leaders and they were to present themselves before the religious leaders so we read they brought to the Pharisee the man sorry it's coming up they brought to the Pharisee the man who had been blind and then all of a sudden the music to the soundtrack changes Dun dun da dun dun da dun dun da dun. He's watching dun dun da dun dun da dun, and he comes to the Pharisees at that point. And this and the the disciples are going, oh man, again, Jesus has gone and done it again, because now the day on which Jesus made the mud and opened the eyes was the Sabbath. You think he would have known better, right? He just never learns. See, according to the tradition of the elders, according to the oral, not the written uh, Torah, the oral, you weren't allowed to do certain things on the Sabbath. And one of the things you couldn't do is you couldn't mix. You couldn't, you couldn't knead, like kneading blood, uh, kneading bread. And, and so he took the spit and the, and the mud and he mixed it. He kneaded it together. He broke a Sabbath rule. And you weren't supposed to heal or do any kind of medicinal anything on the Sabbath unless it was to save a life. So he's in big, big trouble right now. He's before the Pharisees. Therefore, we continue the story. Therefore, the Pharisees who also asked him how he had received his sight, uh, he goes, how? how? How did you receive your sight? He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. And now he's also in trouble because you can't wash on Sabbath either, so now everyone's in trouble. So goes on. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. Silence. Well, how do you know that? Well, it's obvious. It's obvious. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. So because he doesn't keep the Sabbath, he obviously can't be from God. Because if he was from God, he would keep the Sabbath. But he hasn't. So technically, Jesus hasn't really done anything wrong. Technically, he just didn't keep their version of the Sabbath. Technically, he didn't break anything in God's written law. 
But what happened was, and, and we shouldn't be too judgmental on the Pharisees, it's just that Jesus didn't fit their God box. Jesus didn't fit their predetermined ideas of who God is. See, whether we recognize it or not, sorry, come on the next slide, please. Most of us, even those who maybe you haven't decided you actually follow Jesus yet or believe in God yet, we all have a God box. And Jesus is operating way outside the boundaries of their God box, which, by the way, they would have built their own God box based on what they were taught as kids and growing up and those kind of things. But others were asked a very important question. And, and, and they're like, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. And, and they go, how can he be a sinner if he's not from God? How can a sinner be like the rest of us? Because we're all sinners. How can a sinner perform such a sign? How can a sinner perform such signs? They were, they were so divided. And they turned again to the blind man and said, what do you have to say about him? Your, your eyes were open. What do you have to say about him? And he just says, well, I'm a prophet. We can go back one. Sorry, guys. Go back one. So he says he's a prophet. Now, some of the Pharisees, though, they still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. The story goes on. And so they bring in the man's parents, the man's parents who were afraid, because if you get called in to see the Pharisees on a Sabbath day, there's big trouble going on. So they walk in with a lot of fear, and they are asked, is this your son? Is this your son? The parents answered, we know... uh, he was born blind, but how he can see now? Or who opened his eyes? Uh, we don't know. Ask him. I mean, he's of age. He'll speak for himself. He's old enough now to stand in court. He's like 38 years old. He's old enough to testify for himself. His parents said this, John writes, uh, because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided. Already decided. And that's the point here. And here's where some of us are right now who have already decided, already made up their minds that there's no room in my theology. There's no room in my worldview for what I'm seeing right now, for what I'm experiencing right now, for what is happening right before my very eyes. So they had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue ostracized from the community, excommunicated from uh, Judaism. The religious leaders, like some of us, let's be honest, they're the ones who were actually blind in this case. They were actually blinded by their presumptions. Uh, They were blinded by their assumptions, and they refused to see anything that did not fit in their God box. Now, a guy named Francis Collins, he's director of the Human Genome Project, he refers to this as willful blindness. That's when there's something to see, but I'm not looking. Just go to your left. I'm not looking. There's something to see. I'm not looking. That's when there's something to discover, but you won't take time to discover it. It's about cognitive bias, which we talked about a few weeks ago, where that just allows you to only take in information that already affirms, already confirms. You only take in information that already tells you what you already believe. 
and you refuse to acknowledge anything that might pull you out of your context, that might cause you to think beyond your, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, outside of your God box. But they're still not done with this guy. They're not happy with his answers. So we go back to the story. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind, give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, we know this man is a sinner. Okay, so you were blind. We've gotten that far. I get that. You were blind. We've asked your parents if something had happened, but clearly Jesus has nothing to do with the fact that you can see now. So give glory to Yahweh. Give glory to God because this man is a sinner and sinners could not ever perform that kind of sign. And so he replies, look, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. Look, I don't know everything he's saying. I don't, un- I don't understand everything. But here's the thing. I don't have to understand everything to believe something. I don't have to be able to explain everything to believe what's right before my very eyes. I don't even have to be able to explain how everything worked out and why it worked out that way to know that something has happened. I don't have to understand everything to believe something. And here's the good news. Neither do we. Neither do we. And maybe this is where you might be hung up a little bit. You want to understand everything before you believe anything. But here's the other thing. We don't hold this kind of standard to anything else in our life, do we? Nothing else. I mean, do you believe in love? Can you explain it? Right? Do you believe in women? I won't go there. (laughs) Do you believe in consciousness? I'm going to be in so much trouble in our next staff meeting. (laughs) Do you believe in consciousness? Because that's hard to explain. Do you believe in information? Well, yeah. Do you use information? Well, yeah. Can you explain it? Not really. Because I know that there are people here. There are people that we care and know and love that would love to come back to faith, love to come back into a life with Jesus, but our brain won't let you. Your mind won't let you. Some of you did the church community thing a while back and you stopped. And you're just now considering, I'm going to make space for this church thing again. Am I going to make space for Jesus stuff again? Because quite frankly, I've kind of missed the songs. I missed the energy. I've missed the community feel. But something happened that bumped you out. Something happened and you stand on the outside now looking in at all those Christians. And you go, I missed some of that, but I don't get it. And i got to understand everything before I believe again. But you don't hold yourself to that kind of standard in any other area of your life. And your Heavenly Father, who's way bigger than this little God box you're trying to fit him in, says, "Just, just take a baby step. Take one step and believe something. Well, the story continues. Now the young man's getting a bit ticked off. He's getting a bit bold. He's tired of this game. He's fed up with the whole thing. And he replies, look, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. He says, look, here's the one thing I know. Let's just start with what I do know. I can't answer all your questions. I don't know if he's a sinner. Don't ask me big, deep theological questions. But here's what I know. I was blind, and now I'm not. I couldn't see. And now I can. 
And this is the story of millions and millions and millions of Jesus followers all around this planet. And I bet it's your story too. I can't explain it all. I don't understand it all. All I know is this. There was a season of my life when I was at the end of myself. There was a season in my life where I literally hit the wall. There was a season in my life when I was controlled by addiction, where there was a season in my life when I was so lonely, I was suicidal, and I thought about ending it all. There was a season of my life where I had come to my end. I had no place to go, and I cried out to God to see if he was actually really there, or I asked God, or I got on my knees and I prayed. Uh, Don't ask me how. I can't explain it. I can't show you any Bible verses to prove it, but I can tell you something happened. Something happened. For some of you, it happened instantaneously. For others, it happened gradually over time. You were blind, but now you're not. Now you see, and you've never been the same since. And when you hear, when people hear your story, when they hear that story, without all the facts, and they go, look, I'm not sure. What about this? What about that? And what about that gap? Our only answer to that is, look, I know it doesn't all line up. I know it doesn't line up. I'm just telling you, I would never go back to the way things were for anything. And it's only by the grace and love of a personal God who invited me to call him daddy. That's why I am who I am today. That's where I, why I am where I am today. All I know is this. I was blind, but now I see. So they follow up, and they ask another question. Well, what did he do to you? How? How did he open your eyes? They want more reasons to not believe. And now this guy is done. He's had it. And he answers him. He says, look, I've already told you, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear again? Do you want to become his disciples too? (laughs) (laughs) Boom, right there, right? And they get angry. They hurtle insults. They hurl insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And now this guy, he's all up in their face, right? He's toe-to-toe with them right now, and he answers this. He says, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he's opened my eyes. He goes, isn't it obvious Come on, it's obvious where he comes from. Right before you, here's my eyes. I can see now. How much more evidence do you need to know that he came from God? Someone who's not from God can never open the eyes of a man born blind. He goes on and says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they throw him out. In other words, you deserve all the pain you've had. You deserve to be born blind. Your parents deserve to raise you and spend all that money with all that special resourcing and extra uh, educational support. And now you embarrass them by becoming a beggar. You deserve exactly what you've got. It's called willful blindness. Willful blindness. Refusing to look. Refusing to see what can be done. They refuse to see what could be seen. They refuse to discover what could be discovered. Being too afraid to turn around and and peer beyond what they already know into the unknown of where God might actually be working. And let's be honest, when you do that, it doesn't look good for anybody. 
It doesn't, it's not flattering for you at all. And as Christians, as Jesus followers, we're not immune to this. Historically, we've messed up a lot. Historically, our resistance to science, our resistance to people who are not like us, our resistance to people who don't fit in the box of what we have always been taught is acceptable behavior to God. Doesn't our unwillingness to look beyond our God box make us a little bit like those Pharisees in this story? And what happens is that instead of expressing compassion, we express disdain and judgment and self-righteousness. That for different generations, there have been different groups of people that have uh, met this when they've come to church, met a judgmental sense of spirit, uh, met a place that was non-compassionate and judgmental, where they come in and hear us sing songs of mercy and grace And because we couldn't figure out how they fit in our God box that we made like 10, 20 years ago, um, we've limited God. We've limited God to the God of your box. And what we have to do now, what this passage asks us to do now, is risk leaving outside of our spirituality. And what happens is we leave out so many people that God loves out of our community, out of our lives out of the education that they can teach us and how to trust God in areas that we've never had to deal with before. And not only this, here's the worst thing, and I'm convinced of this. When you keep people out because they don't fit in your box, you ultimately miss out on God. See, we should be the most curious people on this planet, the most accommodating, the most accepting, the most loving, the most compassionate, the most patient, the most open-minded people in any room that we enter because we know God is bigger than everything else. We should be the most excited people about creating a context and an environment and a relationship with people who are so far from God so they can move one more step towards God. That's what we should be celebrating, and that's how we should be living, that anyone who takes any step towards God, we praise him for that, and we applaud them for that, and we walk alongside them at their pace so they know they don't do this alone. Whether it fits in our little God box or not, it should excite us to no end. Even if they don't get the words right, even if they don't know where the verse is, even if they don't get the theology right, even if they don't pray right, even if they don't pray at all, if not, we risk missing out on God and we miss out on the miracles he is doing in the lives of everybody around us. Now, for those of us here that are not Christians or maybe you're listening for whatever reason you stumbled on this thing online, and you haven't decided to follow Jesus yet, have you even looked? Have you looked? Are you afraid to look? Are you curious at all? Have you even looked lately? Or have you closed the door on the concept of God? Have you closed the door on the fact that Jesus may in fact be who Jesus said he is, the Son of God, the Messiah who's come to save you? See, now here's how the grace of God works. It's okay to be wrong. This is how the grace of God works. It's okay to be wrong about something. We're all wrong about a lot of things. Think about yourself 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Think about how you looked. Think about what you were wearing 20 years ago. That's embarrassing, (laughs) right? We were wrong. 80s, who grew up in the 80s? That was a whole decade of wrongness right there. That was just wrong. But think about what you thought back then too. Remember when all the AIDS stuff came out? 
You thought that if you used public toilet seats, you might get AIDS and stuff? How stupid. But that was all over in the 80s. It's embarrassing. But here's the truth of God. It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to not know. But it's not okay to not look if there is something to be seen. That's the truth that comes with the grace. John's entire message throughout his gospel is simply this. There is something you should see. We've been there. We saw it. And we're convinced that if you see this and you hear about this, you will know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you will have life, abundant life, new life, eternal life in his name. And the good news is this. You don't have to understand everything to believe something. Would you just consider to take a baby step in trusting that God's at work in your life and in trusting that God's at work in people's lives that you don't want anything to do with and maybe look outside your God box? Let's pray. Father God, it's so wild that in 2023, we're still talking about what it means to accept others. We're still talking about what it means to not judge others to the point where we can't see you at work in people's lives. I am sorry that we forgot that your spirit, because your son came and died and rose again and sent your spirit, that your spirit goes ahead of us to to prepare the hearts and minds of people to know Jesus. And our only job is to partner with you, to live a life that looks like you and to talk about why we love you. God, I'm sorry that we've limited ourselves to a little box. And I ask in Jesus' name that we would just smash that box and recycle it. And that we would live a big, wide-open view of a big, wide-open world that sees you loving everybody. We don't have to understand everything about why people live the way they live. But we do need to know one little something. And that is you came to die for everybody. You came to love everybody. You came to invite everybody into your kingdom for all of eternity. Help us be people that invite people to that. In Jesus' name. Amen.